0: What is it like to go down a rabbit hole? To keep uncovering more and more access to places you really shouldn't have access to? I'm interested in that hacker mind, that curiosity that gets you to go from a simple query to a real and unforeseen result. We've seen hints of this in TV shows such as Mr. Robot. Yeah, help you with something? I like coming here because. Your Wi-Fi was fast. I mean, you're one of the few spots that has a fiber connection with gigabit speed. It's good, it's so good. It scratched that part of my mind, part that doesn't allow good to exist without condition. So I started intercepting all the traffic on your network. And That's when I noticed something strange. That's when I decided to hack you. I know you run a website called Plato's Boys. Pardon me? You're using Tor networking to keep the servers anonymous. You made it really hard for anyone to see it, but I saw it. The onion rooting protocol, it's not as anonymous as you think it is. Whoever's in control of the exit nodes is also in control of the traffic, which makes me the one in control. Let's unpack that. Fast gigabyte Wi-Fi leads Elliot to discover a tour network which leads him to the onion routing protocol that somehow gets him access to the exit node which leads to child pornography. And all that while he's having a cup of coffee at the local shop. Mr. Robot's a good show for the most part. But what is it really like for a researcher to go down one path and find that it leads to another and then another and then another? Like chasing a rabbit. You might start out with a very innocent question, like what if somebody misconfigured their cloud database? And that leads you to end up holding the keys to Microsoft Azure Surface Fabric Framework. And if it did, what might that process look like? What are the decisions that you make to get there? In this episode, I'll talk with two researchers who simply followed the rabbit. And in a moment, we'll find out where it led them. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking with two researchers who put on their black hats and discovered, quite by accident, complete unrestricted access to the accounts and databases of several thousand Microsoft Azure customers. It's an interesting story, one they presented at Black Hat Europe in 2021. So I hope you'll stick around. Cloud security is relatively new, and as such, it probably hasn't gotten as much attention as it deserves. In episode 28, I talked with Ophir Harpaz and Peleg Hedar about fuzzing the hypervisor that's used in Microsoft Azure Cloud. It's a pretty serious vulnerability. It ended up ranking nine out of 10 in severity. I'm happy to report that Microsoft addressed it very quickly. Recently though, Another set of researchers found yet another vulnerability in Azure. And this chaos db vulnerability, that too was resolved very quickly by Microsoft. But what happened in Azure could easily happen in other clouds. I mean, anyone can be guilty of having a bad configuration. So I wanted to learn more about that process, how a bad configuration could end up owning the keys to the kingdom.
1: Hey, my name is Nir Ochfeld, and I'm a security researcher at Wiz. So
2: uh, my name is Dick, and I'm also a security researcher at Wiz. Wiz is a cloud security company. Uh, we actually have a platform that helps uh, like big, big customers manage their cloud environments. Um, it supports like all the cloud environments that uh, uh, you probably uh, know of, like uh, AWS, GCP, um, Azure, um, Oracle, like everything that uh, should have. Uh, You should need the support. uh...
0: So the cloud is a hard concept to drive across a podcast with no visuals. Typically you see a diagram of a cloud as having boxes within boxes within boxes. So let's imagine instead it's a building. So in this building, there are sections that are public and private, and that's true for every occupant of the building. So already we're building some complexity here we have maybe a couple main corridors and off of those main corridors are doors and then behind those doors are other doors and behind those doors there may be other doors and ultimately you get to the virtual machines. You get to the secrets, you get to the database that the company is running. Okay, I'll admit the building isn't perfect as an analogy. Buildings are physical and they're rigid whereas clouds, they're virtual and elastic. But the point here is that even in the cloud, you have stuff that is public, that can be seen by everyone, and then stuff that is sensitive and private, and only you can see behind those locked doors. When organizations move to the clouds, one of the first choices they have to make is who is going to manage the configuration and the security. A simple analogy would be someone who is going to manage which doors to lock and which doors to keep open. and there are people and services that are there to help you do this. Or you can try to do it all by yourself. That is what Neil and Sigi started looking at, the configuration tools that are out there to help people manage their cloud configurations. They wanted to see what would happen if somebody set it up all wrong.
2: Generally, from our point of view as researchers, uh, we like uh, split the cloud services to uh, two things. You have... Uh, self-managed products and uh, like the uh, cloud uh, infrastructure and inv- uh, managed products. So you can either set up a PostgreSQL on your uh, EC2 and that's that will be self-managed and uh, you own the, the security and uh, everything around it. And uh, th- that's your problem. And uh, you can either uh, choose to use a managed product, which means that the, the cloud service provider will actually provision uh, resources for you to use. And if there is a vulnerability that needs to be patched in in, uh, one of the products that uh, they allocated to you, uh, it's their responsibility to do that. In order to be able to do uh, such things, um, they actually have to have uh, some uh, like stuff installed uh, that you are not uh, absolutely aware of uh, in order to to be able to monitor and manage your uh, instance. So uh, what we find interesting is uh, researching managed services, uh, because uh, we believe that the cloud service provider treats them differently uh, from self-managed services. So uh, there there might be more stuff to find out.
0: One of the big benefits of cloud services, as I mentioned before, is elasticity. If your work expands, you can spin up more instances. And if your work decreases, you can spin them down again. Since... They're virtual. This is a huge cost savings over provisioning physical servers, and then having some of those servers just sit dormant when you don't need them. Keeping track of all of that makes having a managed service very attractive.
2: So I think that uh, uh, most people uh, rather use the managed stuff because um, it's easier. uh, It's easier to use because you don't have to. That's one of the magic in the cloud. You don't have to own security. If your workload gets uh, big enough, it will actually. Uh, some services uh, expand automatically and you don't have to worry about the underlying resources and how many virtual machines you have uh, in order to handle uh, like uh, this uh, this huge payload
0: At Black Hat Europe Neil and Sagi presented a vulnerability in the Cosmos DB one of the cloud management services I mentioned it It turns out that Cosmos DB is used by some of the world's largest organizations to manage the massive amounts of data in near real time that they need. So imagine the prize if you could somehow get access to all of that.
2: So uh, Cosmos DB is a managed database solution offered by Azure. Um, This means that uh, if you are an Azure customer, you can use uh, Cosmos DB to manage your data for your uh, applications. And uh, it's uh, generally quite popular service among our customers. And that's uh, one of the reasons that we chose to actually research it, um, because we've seen many of our customers using it. And we wanted to make sure that, like, uh, if you can configure it wrong, uh, we will be able as a, as a product to tell you that you configure it wrong, like get, get it correctly.
0: To give some perspective, Cosmos DB powers critical business functions like Processing millions of prescription transactions or managing customer order flows on e-commerce sites, so it's super important.
2: So if yeah, if if you find a vulnerability in Cosmos DB, and since this is a managed service, we, we believe that it could affect a lot of customers, uh, and our customers are using Cosmos DB. So we found, we felt like it's important for us to audit it. We have a problem that cloud vulnerabilities do not usually get CVEs. Um, so that's one of the reasons we actually name our vulnerabilities, because instead of referencing like, uh, yeah, the Cosmos DB vulnerability, you could actually you would normally reference to the CVE number. But since there are no CVEs for cloud vulnerabilities, uh, we we rather use like a catchy name. So like Chaos DB in that case. Um, so now it, it wasn't scored because as i said there is no cv but we did get a bounty from azure and uh, to that time it was the maximum bounty offered by azure which is uh, $40,000 so this means that they azure probably understand how severe this vulnerability actually was and uh, they gave us a bounty accordingly
0: so in reading about the chaos db vulnerability you might think that they set out to find this to that they could somehow access thousands of Azure customers using Cosmos DB. Actually, that's not at all what happened. Again, they just had a simple goal, to misconfigure Cosmos DB. What could possibly go wrong? And for there, they let their curiosity lead the way.
2: This entire story is like, uh, follow the rabbit. Like, we, we set up a Cosmos DB account, hmm, here is an interesting feature. And then we, ah, it lets me execute code, but I don't have root privileges, hmm, what do I do? Okay, let's let's attempt to uh, like elevate our privileges. And, and then we find like, it's one thing lead to another, uh, which uh, made it like quite fun during
1: the research, so. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Capture the Flag competition, really, really fun.
0: serendipity. One of the fun aspects of doing research is that when you start out on a project, you often don't know the outcome ahead of time. It's a happy set of accidents that leads you from one thing to another in the process. Neil and Sagi were originally looking for misconfigurations that users can make when they're trying to set up their Cosmos DB on their own.
1: So while we browse all the features in the user interface, like trying to, to set up like the least secure Cosmos DB instance <laughs> possible, <laughs> we found that uh, Cosmos DB lets its customers uh, use a product called Jupyter Notebook. Okay. Jupyter Notebook is a, a product that lets the customers rep- represent their uh, data in cool ways using code. And because we were already familiar with uh, Jupyter Notebook, we knew that it lets his custom- let its customers execute arbitrary code and us and for us as researchers it we can <laughs> we can't uh, like look at the place that lets us execute arbitrary code and not <laughs> dive in during a recon we have uh, we like raised multiple questions like uh, where is this instance uh, running in is it in my account is it in someone else's account is this instance shared across customers and in order to answer that some of that unanswered questions, uh, we tried to uh, elevate our privileges.
0: There's this concept in security of least privileges when sharing data. You might only want someone to see the data and not touch it. You might not even want them to see it. But if you can elevate those privileges, then you can do a whole lot more. You can potentially change the data.
1: The privilege escalation bugs are pretty common. And we believe that uh, if we uh, put enough resources in order to find one in the Jupyter notebook implementation, we'll eventually find one. So uh, like after <laughs> and it turns out it wasn't quite uh, that difficult. After clicking on enough buttons in the user interface, we eventually <laughs> found a way to escalate our privileges to root.
0: so that's actually how I beta test things. I randomly click things until something breaks. and I remember calling Symantec and reporting a serious bug in an early version of their password manager. When I told them the random keystrokes I had done, they screamed back, why would anyone strike those keys in that order? Why indeed. The the fact of the matter, though, was that it opened the password manager without any passwords so anyone could see in clear text its content. It doesn't matter why somebody
1: would strike those keys in that order. It's still a vulnerability, right? Right. It, by default, the Jupyter notebook uh, runs in Python 3, but uh, which runs in a low-privileged user named Cosmos user. But when we switched our, our programming language from Python 3 to C++ we found out they, that the C++ notebook actually runs as with, with privileges, not the low privileges Cosmos user. After elevating our privileges to root, we uh, we could conduct a more extensive recon around the Jupyter notebook environment we found out that the Jupyter Notebook had some local firewall rules restricting uh, network access. And when we reviewed the firewall rules, we found uh, some uh, familiar uh, IP addresses, like the IP address of the Azure Instance Metadata Service, which lets, well, for for any of you who are not familiar with the metadata service, it's a service in Azure. It's, a, it's like an, uh, a static IP, for each uh, Azure virtual machine where the customer can access in order to retrieve metadata regarding the uh, virtual machine instance. So the developers of the Jupyter Notebook service found it important. So customers cannot access that instance metadata service uh, IP address. And we couldn't see these uh, rules uh, because we
2: didn't have root uh, privileges uh, when we started uh, this yeah. process. So uh, initially we were like, uh, we executed code as the unprivileged user. We tried accessing this uh, IMDS URL. It's like CURL and then a, an IP address that everyone knows. And uh, y- like this failed, but we didn't quite understand why.
0: IMDS is instance metadata service, and they couldn't see IMDS. The service holds the metadata about the currently running virtual machine instance, such as its storage, network configuration, and more you simply need an http request and then you can retrieve the unique information per the virtual machine they issued a request and discovered a couple of interesting things
2: uh, either the, the like this virtual machine does not have access to the imds or uh, there is nothing that there is something that prevents us from actually uh, using it but we we couldn't actually answer it because we didn't have root privileges and uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, we decided to actually elevate our privileges to root or at least to try to elevate our privileges to root because there was there was stuff that we didn't quite understand regarding our environment, but uh, we didn't have the, the means to answer why uh, because we weren't visible to everything.
0: So that's when they converted to C-sharp and elevated their privileges. That's when the landscape changed.
1: After elevating our privileges to root, we could inspect the firewall rules. And uh, after like reviewing the firewall rules, we saw that the developers of the service didn't want the the users of service to uh, access certain IP addresses. One of the IP addresses was the Instance Metadata Service. Hmm. One other uh, IP address was an IP IP address we weren't familiar with, and uh, which we later found out to be the uh, the IP address of a server called the wire server which is another static IP address that can be found in every Azure Virtual Machine instance. And uh, the firewall rules also prevented the virtual machine to accessing any IP addresses in the 10.0.0.0/16 subnet, which is a pretty uh, wide, uh, like a big subnet of IP addresses.
2: Yeah, and and these are uh, traditionally like internal IP addresses. So uh, this indicates that there is some like internal network that uh, the developers specifically try to forbid us from accessing. Um, but since we had root privileges and these, these were local firewall rules that were configured using IP tables, we could actually just flush them using IP -f.
0: IP tables is a way to configure the IP packet filter rules in the Linux kernel firewall. The filters are organized in different tables, which contain chains of rules for how to treat network traffic packets. To answer some of their more immediate questions, they issued IP tables command in order to view the local firewall rules configured on this machine. They wanted to see what network resources they can access. In the IP tables, they found a couple of interesting rules. One prevented them from gaining access to IMDS. There's also a firewall rule that prevents access to the 10.0.0.16 subnet. And finally, there's a rule that prevents the researchers from accessing a very specific address. Fortunately, these are local firewall rules, and by simply issuing IP tables F, they removed those rules. In other words, they had flushed the IP tables.
2: You would expect that this wouldn't work because uh, it's like not the best practice to enforce uh, firewall rules locally. I mean, they could have just uh, enforce this outside of our uh, container of uh, or uh, the machine, or like using a separate uh, uh, a se- a separate um, resource in order to do that. But uh, actually, when we flush these rules, we could uh, <laughs> we could somehow like access these forbidden IP addresses. And um, so this shows that um, someone thought about like uh, restricting network access in that environment, but uh, they chose to do it like using local firewalls, which is not the best practice. And uh, yeah, we could have like taken advantage of it.
0: Understand that for an adversarial attacker, this is an opportunity. They're looking for such weaknesses. And by having root privileges and by flushing the local firewall rules, this means that they now have access. Like uh,
1: enforcing the, the firewall rules locally uh, assumes that an attacker can't gain uh, root privileges. When in reality, as we mentioned before, uh, privilege escalation bugs are pretty common. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like you can, uh, you can like
2: uh, use a, a one-day CV. and now these days uh, there are quite a lot. I mean, there were two that uh, we released this week. So even if we didn't find the, the bug that lets us run uh, root, uh, code with root privileges using the C notebook, uh, as Nir mentioned earlier, Uh, We could still uh, like look for a a one-day CV and uh, attempt to use it before uh, Microsoft patches it. So uh, this this is not the best practice, in my opinion.
0: (laughs) Easy to lose perspective here. On TV, it's bam, 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 and I have root on a system, and I've never seen it before. But how long does it
1: take to find a vulnerability and exploit it? Weeks? Months? Less than a week? Like four or five days? something like that <laughs> since, since, since the day we started
2: this research looking for cosmos Db misconfigurations until uh august 9th where we actually found the vulnerability and reported it to microsoft it took us about a week of uh, following the rabbit and uh, yeah. like hard hard work and sleepless <laughs> nice but, yeah yeah, uh, yeah.
1: It's, like, it's, it's like a four or five days which uh it's more like uh <laughs> eight to ten days because <laughs> we were working like all night and uh, because uh, We really enjoyed it. Yeah, and and this is only like the the middle of the
2: the story where the good part is like still to come.
0: So Neil and Sagi, there are these firewall rules that are preventing them from looking at certain things. By removing them, they now can see them.
2: Okay, so uh, as uh, as Nir just said, uh, there were free IP addresses that we know that the developers of the service don't want us to access, but uh, they chose like uh, not the best way to enforce it. So uh, since we were running as root, we uh, removed these uh, firewall rules. So now that these firewall rules do not exist anymore, we can actually access the MDS. So we do like uh, MDS. And there's the like metadata information regarding our uh, our VM. So one of the things that we found interesting is that the subscription ID that the MDS returns is not our subscription ID. Now uh, I, I don't know. Just to make uh, just to make it clear, a subscription is like uh, uh, your uh, essentially account ID, like who owns this machine. And since this is not a subscription ID that we are familiar with, this means that. It, this is not our machine, now.
0: They noticed other interesting things. They noticed, for example, their operating system type was set to Windows. This was strange, since they were obviously running Linux commands in a Linux terminal. So why would it be set to Windows? After digging a bit more into their environment, they determined that they were accessing their local host machine metadata service, but not the metadata service for their container. In other words, their host machine was actually running Windows virtual machines and their container was not.
2: Either uh, Microsoft uh, provisioned it for us, which makes sense. But uh, then the second rule, the second IP tables rules, which is the uh, rule that forbids us from accessing uh, internal network, uh, like the 10.0.0 16 subnet, which uh, indicates that there are more um, IP addresses internally, uh, which we could access. Uh, made this fact uh, a bit interesting. Uh, like maybe there are more machines like us that we can access this way.
0: This is the moment when the hacker walks an ethical edge. It's when someone could start to do some serious damage. But of course, we're talking to ethical hackers who are only curious about what else is available to them so they can document it and inform Microsoft.
2: According to the MDS, uh, we also add an IP address in that subnet. Uh, which means that uh, we could probably access them. Um, But uh, uh, as Nir also mentioned, there was like this IP IP address that we weren't familiar with, uh, which uh, when searching on Google, uh, we found out that uh, this IP address belonged to something called the wire server.
0: You can think of the wire server as used to supply any information the agent needs in order to function properly. So when a user installs an extension in Azure, the Wire Server instructs the virtual machine's agent to install that extension, supplying the appropriate configurations. It's interesting that Microsoft offers no official
1: documentation for Wire Server. So after like reading that, we want, uh, we wondered does uh, which extensions does the uh, underlying virtual machine hosting our instance have? Because uh, obviously we're querying like something that is not our own. And maybe uh, like retrieving the extension and its configuration uh, may, may help us to learn more about our hosted uh, hosting virtual machine and the environment we're running in.
0: So they learned a few more things. For example, before an agent can retrieve any configurations, let alone extension configurations, it must first fetch something called the goal state. What's the goal state? Well, the goal state is, among other things, a list of endpoints that the agents need to contact in order to fetch different configuration settings. What Sagi and Neil found was that they could download any Azure virtual machine goal state by executing a CRL command.
1: After uh, contacting the the server and retrieving all the uh, extensions installed on the virtual machine, what we found out that although we were running inside of a Linux environment, like running bash commands, the the underlying virtual machine was actually a Windows virtual machine, not a Linux one. So uh, this made, <laughs> made it even more interesting. Uh, for each extension, the wireless server supplies the its configuration, and its configuration can be divided for two, uh, into, into two parts. There's the public settings section, which uh, contains generally information about the the settings of the extensions, but for more sensitive information, like uh, hard coded credentials or pass or uh, certificates, this kind this kind of information can be found in the something called the protected settings of the extension, and because the protected settings holds sensitive information, it's encrypted. Now, we wanted to know, What's in the protected settings <laughs> of the extension? Yeah, May- it's, like
2: the, it's like a protected setting of an extension that uh, belongs to a Windows virtual machine while uh, our own terminal is like a Linux terminal. So there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. And uh, at this point, we suspect that uh, it's like an extension that belongs to uh, the host machine. Like we are a virtual machine. We are a guest virtual machine inside an hypervisor. And the the... the the extension that we got is of our hypervisor. Uh, so we thought that this is quite interesting. And since this, since stuff in the protected setting is essentially secrets, we thought that uh, maybe if we will decrypt these this protected settings, we will actually have secrets that can be used uh, in the service uh, generally. And we cover all of this thing in the, in our blacket talk and the, in the blog. Uh, which you, you are welcome to to check out if you want like the the exact uh, stuff that we did and in way more detail. We, we are just giving you a brief essentially, and if you have a like a question, you can uh, ask us specifically. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if, if something is not clear because it's doing like a very high level overview and without any slides, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's very hard like to, to pass the message. You actually showing the protected settings and the public settings.
0: Remember office building analogy and the rabbit running through those corridors. Okay, every company using this cloud has a door along a main corridor, but we're still on the outside, or at least we're at a point where we're in the lobby of this building, and maybe we've started to chase the rabbit up the staircase, and we've encountered a few public open doors, but we've also encountered some locked doors. So again, it's an imperfect analogy, but you're getting the idea
1: we wanted to decrypt the protected settings in order to retrieve secrets that maybe us, we didn't know, like as Sagi mentioned, this is the, follow the rabbit. So for each, uh, we don't have a, a, like a precise uh, goal for every uh, everything we did. <laughs> we like, so let, yeah, let's just wing it and maybe something will work. So if there is a path where we can maybe gain uh, secrets that w- we weren't supposed to access, we, try, we will try to do it. So we tried to decrypt the uh, the protected settings. And uh, in order to understand how the protected settings are, uh, are decrypted, we reviewed the code of the Azure uh, virtual machine, Linux agent, also known as the WA agent. The WA agent is an open source software hosted on GitHub. It's written in Python, uh, which uh, made it uh, pretty easy uh, um, it made it pretty easy for us to reverse engineer it and to understand how the uh, protected settings are supposed to be decrypted. So uh, after reviewing the code, we found out the wire server that uh, has other endpoints besides the extension uh, extensions endpoint, and it also has a certificates endpoint. So the agent uh, contacts the certificates endpoint, certificates endpoint, in order to retrieve the the encryption and decryption keys uh, for the the virtual machines uh, extensions protected settings. So uh, we built a a very nice like CRL command, which was was pretty long. We sent the CRL command and we expected to get back uh, the, the encryption keys. And after reviewing the code, the format in which the uh, encryption keys, the encryption, decryption keys are supposed to come in, is uh, some kind of format called a PK, PKCS7 blob.
0: PKCS7 is one of a family of standards called public key cryptography standards created by RSA laboratories.
1: What we actually got back from the wire server after executing the CRL command is um, a, um, in a, was in a different format in some kind of a peculiar format called a Certificates Bond Package.
2: Okay, so, uh, yeah, we, we got a Certificates Bond Package from uh, from the Certificates endpoint. And initially, uh, we, we tried to use the same OpenSSL commands to decrypt it uh, the same way we uh, decrypted the PKCS7 7, 7 blob, uh, but it didn't actually work. So we were like, uh, okay, how do we decrypt this uh, Certificates Bond Package format? So we uh, tried Googling it and uh, google at that time had like exactly zero answers <laughs> in, <laughs> that show you how to decrypt this format and uh, then we thought okay so we have the source code for the linux agent and uh, this this is uh, something that we got back from the uh, certificate endpoint of the wire server so uh, the linux agent the w agent should be able uh, to decrypt it let's uh, let's read the code and see how it does it um there is no reference to certificate bond package inside the <laughs> the, the source code of the linux agent and uh, then we were then we were a bit stumped and but then we remembered that uh, according to the mds uh, and according to the extension information we retrieved so far we are actually retrieving uh, information for a windows virtual machine and not a linux virtual machine remember earlier when i said that uh, uh, that even though we are using like a Linux terminal, the IMDS tells us that we are running inside the Windows virtual machine, and we found that weird. So we thought that, uh, OK, maybe the Linux agent does not know how to decrypt the certificate one package format, but uh, maybe if we will set up an, uh, an Azure virtual machine that has the Windows agent installed, uh, maybe it will know how to actually decrypt it. Uh, so we did just that. We set up an uh, Azure virtual machine that had uh, the, uh, the Windows agent installed, which is named, I think, uh, Windows Azure Guest Agent.exe, if I recall correctly. You recall correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Now, uh, we started examining it, and uh, since it is written in uh, .NET, it is very easy to decompile it uh, to something that uh, resembles source code. Uh, so we did just that. And then we looked for the string certificates bond package. And uh, this was like the first time ever we actually found a reference to this string. And uh, since this was .NET, it was uh, quite easy to actually uh, build something that user utilizes the DLLs that are used uh, in this project in order to be able to decrypt this certificate bonds package format.
0: It seems so easy in retrospect, doesn't it? If you know where you're going, you might be able to guess these things. But they didn't. They didn't know where the rabbit hole would lead them. They had to rely on their own experiences to inform where to turn next. And they were generous about it. Remember the search results that returned zero matches? They did something about that.
2: Um, So we wrote a small uh, uh, C-shop snippet that you can also find on our blog that actually uh, decrypt this format. So if you ever encounter uh, this format in the future, uh, you can reuse uh, our work in order to do that. So the
0: point here was to decrypt these certificates and see what's there. Where does it get the decryption key? The answer is the certificate's endpoint. And
2: um, so uh, now that we can actually decrypt the certificate's one package format, uh, we did it. and. Uh, when we set up uh, an, uh, an, a Linux virtual machine and did it, and also a Windows virtual machine. When we set up a Windows virtual machine and uh, decrypted the, the PKCS, PKCS7 blob, uh, we got back like two certificates uh, at most. And this is what we expected to get uh, when we did it with the certificates bond package as well. But in reality, uh, when we decrypted the certificates bond package, format, we actually got back 25 certificates instead of two.
0: Okay, that's certainly a wrinkle.
2: And <laughs> some of them had like very interesting name. Uh, we had the certificate for asterisk.notebook.cosmos.com or something like this. We had like a wildcard certificate for, uh, for a domain that is owned by uh, Microsoft and is actually used when you attempt to use the the web console of the cosmos db so uh, when you query like your uh, your database using the web console there's an http request going to a domain that uh, that can be signed using this certificate uh, which at this point we knew that we're onto something like we knew that we should probably don't have the private key for this uh, for this certificate and uh, yeah there were other couple interesting certificates but that we had a private key for, uh, but according to their name, and uh, yeah, Neil, do you want to continue? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so at this point of our research, we, as Sagi mentioned, we felt that we are onto something, but uh, we were a bit, a, a bit stuck. <laughs> like, we got a bunch of certificates. It's like it was like getting a lot of keys, lots of keys, but you don't know where is the door. <laughs> like, what do I do with all of these private keys? What are they useful? So uh, we said, okay, maybe we, we missed something uh, during our uh, research. And let, let's, back, let's get back to the extension configuration we got back from the wire server. We also, uh, we also have now the, the, the keys required for decrypting the protected settings. So let's, de- let's decrypt them. Maybe one of them will contain some kind of uh, interesting information. So we decrypted all the protected settings and found Pretty much nothing. <laughs> we got like, uh, we didn't get anything that was interesting at that time.
0: Ah, another stone wall. Some interesting stuff, but no clear way in which it all fits together.
2: We hope to find like credential and stuff that we can use in other interfaces, but we didn't find anything like this.
0: Okay, so Nal and
1: Zegi have decrypted the keys, but the keys weren't clear on how they could be used. We then said, okay, we we know Azure a bit more uh, by by this time. So let's review all the extensions again. Maybe we'll find some kind of an interesting extension. And we saw that uh, there was an extension called Service Fabric Node. Okay, so we had no idea what Service actually is. Service Fabric actually is, but uh, but uh, <laughs> the Service Fabric node extension had some some things uh, that seemed pretty pretty interesting <coughs> inside of its uh, public settings. First, it mentioned some kind of a certificate, which was a certificate w- <coughs> which called was name was Service Fabric West US One, which we retrieved from the wire server, which was one of the twenty five certificates we got back from the wire server, and it mentioned some kind of a URL. So we took that exact same URL and put it in Google Chrome and browsed to it. After accessing th- th- that URL, an authentication prompt popped up requesting for an authentication certificate. Meaning, this is one of the doors we were looking for. This is an aha moment. <laughs> they wanted the certificate to let us in. So our best bet was <laughs> to just take the certificate we got back from the wire server that was mentioned in the public settings of the, of the extension. And, and, and it worked.
0: So if you've been paying close attention so far, you'll recall that our jailbreak included removing the local firewall rules from the IP tables that prevented them from accessing the 10.0.0.016 16 subnet. With it removed, they could now access it freely.
1: What we got back was like a huge XML manifest file containing a bunch of interesting information. It mentioned some kind of a port, port nineteen thousand and eighty, which, which was an HTTPS port. And it also have had a few mentions to the, uh, to the certificate, the Service Fabric West US 1 certificate, so, which made us believe that this certificate does have some kind of significance. And it also has had multiple reference to the word Service Fabric. So at this point, we asked ourselves, what is Service Fabric? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, what is it?
1: So when, when we searched Service Fabric on Google, we found out that this is a, a container orchestration solution, which is which is actually what powers Azure. <laughs> but before being honest, from this point until like the end of the research, we did as Ah yes, Kubernetes. <laughs> Ouch, Kubernetes is orchestration
0: used by Google. It's agnostic, but you realize that it's Google deep down. Officially, Service Fabric is an open-source project at Microsoft, and it powers core Azure infrastructure, as well as other Microsoft services.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is like the, the Microsoft version of Kubernetes. Let's read it that way. And the, the manifest file also mentions a few IP addresses in the 10.0.0-16 subnet. And as a reminder, we're actually inside of the 10.0.0.16 16 subnet, according to the instance metadata service. And we removed the firewall rules that should have prevented
2: us from accessing the 10.0 in subnet so we can actually access them now. So
1: after conducting a port scan around that subnet, we found out that some of the endpoints in that subnet are listening on the port 19,080, which after like researching a bit about service fabric, we found out this is like the service fabric management port. Oh crap.
0: This is the main way in which Microsoft services its Azure clients.
1: And in order to communicate, with that manage port, management port there is a, a standard a command line tool offered by microsoft called SFCTL, like se- a service fabric command line tool and we try to connect to these management ports over the, in, in that subnet in the 10.0.0.15 subnet and the the authentication process it, it, it it's obviously requires some kind of authentication and the authentication process requires a certificate, and, and I, until now there is just one certificate that had all the answers. We only use just one certificate and it always always worked. So we use that certificate, the Service Fabric West US one certificate, and and actually it worked. We were able to authenticate to the cluster, and we tried to. We didn't know anything about Service Fabric, so we tried to like fuzz it. We tried to like <laughs> like put all the commands we like did sfctl minus 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 help and try to all to run all the commands that the command line offers. and uh, and after running and after some trial and error, we, uh, we we issued the command sfctl application list and it it sped out like five hundred Cosmos db instances.
0: Okay, so this is like hitting a jackpot. 500 Cosmos DB instances. There was still work to be done. For example, could
1: they look inside? And for each Cosmos DB instance, we got a bunch of encrypted authentication tokens. We got like the pri- primary, uh, an encrypted form of the primary key for the database. And at this point, we knew that the primary key for the database is equivalent to the root password in the, a traditional database meaning it allows for full uh, read and write access. But as I just said, all of these authentication tokens are encrypted. They're useless for us. (laughs) No endpoint will accept an encrypted form of an authentication token. But to this point at our research, we only use a fraction of the certificates we got back from the the wire server. We only use the one for the service fabric. So, what, did, what we try to do is take each and every one of the, of the encrypted authentication tokens and decrypt it with, with each and every one of the of the certificates we got back from the wild server. And now, <laughs> right. knowing the answers, knowing the answer, we feel a little dumb, knowing that the encryption certificate had a pretty indicative name. Its name was FabricSecrets.Cosmos.Azure.com. <laughs> To our surprise, it was just one certificate to encrypt all cross-tenant sensitive authentication tokens. Uh, Note it, it was it's like a, 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 com- a common ground for all tenants that are all been encrypted using just one certificate. So it was really surprising for us. We, we believe that at this point, we believe that maybe this certificate will be able only to decrypt our authentication tokens only for our tenant. To also mention that, according to like uh, to the Microsoft documentation and various other things, Service Fabric is a core component inside Azure. And as I mentioned before, it's it's like it. <coughs> this is what actually makes some of the Azure services function. This so. It's a uh, from our understanding uh, according to the documentation and uh, and our research. Uh, the, <coughs> Authenticating to the service fabric is like authenticating to the uh, service control plane. It's a very high uh, high value uh, core component that we connected to over the internet.
0: So over the internet, with all they've done, they were able to find the keys to the kingdom. But could they only see their one tenant or could they see
2: all the tenants? They did manage to decrypt like uh, uh, authentication tokens of uh, uh, of other tenants, of other customers and uh, some of the, the credentials that we got after decrypting the secrets, uh, there was like the, the primary key for the database. So we could use it in order to uh, authenticate to other customers' database. And like the SFCTL application list command also reveals the, the name of the database. So uh, we had the name and we had the password. We could just like authenticate to it.
0: Again, this is that ethical moment when a bad actor could plunder those other tenants. They have the name and the password, but it gets worse. They found another way, one using the Jupyter Notebook, that could access these tenants as well. And in many ways, this was worse, at least from the standpoint of forensics.
2: There's also a, a token for the notebook service. So if we, don't, if we don't want to use the primary key, we can also use the, the token for the notebook service and it would appear like... a like something else in the logs, uh, so we could use that. And there's a fair token, third authentication token that uh, we managed to decrypt, uh, which is like an authentication token that uh, you could use for uh, uh, for storage, for Azure storage account. And this is the storage account that when you attempt to save the notebook that you have, like you, you made the notebook that queries your database and do some calculations, Uh, you can save your progress to an Azure storage account. So uh, we could actually have access to that Azure storage account and we could have modified your notebook. So the next time that you as a customer use that notebook, you will actually be the one querying your database and modifying the data, which would be like insanely hard to track because you are the one doing the modifications.
0: Let's think about that. You, as a bad actor, are logged in as someone else and making modifications. But when the victim looks back at the logs, it would show that they made the modifications. This is not good.
2: So we, we had a couple of like uh, interesting attack vectors using these uh, decrypted certificates, uh, which was fun. So we had like, okay, we have uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, service fabric that we attempted to authenticate locally using the certificate that we got. Uh, but we thought, let, let's take this one step further. Let's see uh, if like, there exists uh, a, a Service Fabric instance that is accessible from the internet and will actually accept our certificate uh, of the Fabric.West US 1 certificate because this seems to be a certificate that opens the most doors. So, uh,
0: okay, so this is a significant escalation. Now they're trying to use the certificate that they just found by chasing the rabbit from here to here to here. They want to use that certificate from the outside. They want to see what else they can access in other accounts from the internet. And in their case, from an IP address that's coming from Tel Aviv, Israel.
2: Uh, what we actually did is that we scanned the entire internet for port uh, 90,080 uh, and see how many uh, service public instances are there that belong to Microsoft. and. Uh, are externally facing and will actually accept uh, the certificates that we have and it turned out that we actually managed to authenticate to over 100 uh, service fabrics uh, over the internet and I think this was like the first time uh, an IP address from Israel Tel Aviv actually authenticated to these service fabrics (laughs) over the internet and it probably like uh, raised some alarms inside the Microsoft offices, but <laughs> we can tell. and uh, most of these uh, service fabrics uh, belong to the uh, cosmos service, uh, but some of them like belong to other services and we have this screenshot on our blog, so you're welcome to check it out. but uh, like we didn't have time or resources to cover all of these service fabrics and what they're like uh, what they're, what is their function and what is their purpose and uh, so we, <laughs> we wrapped everything up and sent this report to Microsoft.
0: So they started out with just trying to misconfigure a popular service in Azure. They then set up the Jupyter Notebook container in their Azure Cosmos DB. They ran C-sharp code to obtain root privileges, They removed the firewall rules set locally in the container in order to gain unrestricted network access. They then queried the wire server to obtain information about their installed extensions, certificates, and other corresponding private keys. They then connected to the local service fabric, listing all the running applications, and found the primary key to other customers' databases. They were then able to access the service fabric instances of multiple regions over the internet, and then they wrapped it all up and responsibly reported all of this to Microsoft.
2: Actually, Microsoft responded really well. They like answered us in. Uh, I think you remember the timeline. Like we want,
1: uh, like they responded really well, and we wanted uh, to to emphasize it because it's very very impressive. Yeah, we, we sent uh, the the advisory to Microsoft, uh, letting him know of this uh, incident, and uh, less than 48 hours after report, we noticed that the vulnerable feature, the Jupyter Notebook feature, was disabled to all Cosmos DB customers. And it's, it's funny to note that this feature is disabled, to this day, this feature is still disabled. Yeah, we <laughs> checked it right before the podcast, and we saw that this feature is still disabled. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we found it pretty funny. <laughs> and uh, four days after sending the report, uh, Microsoft uh, responded to us, acknowledging our report. And, uh, and we also uh, noticed that uh, on the same day, they acknowledged our report. Some of the obtained credentials we obtained during our research were starting to be revoked. Uh, things like certificates and authentication tokens, no longer worked. And a day after that, only five days after our initial report, Microsoft awarded us with the maximum bounty available for Azure, $40,000. And this is like the fastest bounty we've ever received from any vendor. Only five days after a report being sent on a Friday. It's very impressive. And I've noted how Microsoft tends to take vulnerability
0: reports very seriously of late, which is good for all of us.
1: 11 days after our initial uh, report, uh, we had a Teams meeting, with the Microsoft security team where they conferred to us that there, that there are several thousands of customers that are, were affected by this vulnerability. And 13 days after our report, uh, Microsoft sent an email notification to all undeniably affected customers uh, that like, were affected from this vulnerability. But uh, this is important, uh, something important to note, that Microsoft chose to send an email notification Only to customers that had the Jupyter Notebook feature enabled during a research period, which lasted less than a week. But we feel that Microsoft should have emailed all potentially impacted customers because although this vulnerability is now patched, we can never be sure that this vulnerability wasn't exploited prior to our engagement.
0: That's a good point. Microsoft could have contacted all Cosmos DB customers. This shouldn't, however, detract from the fact that they did take it seriously and they did act very quickly.
2: Yeah, but Microsoft really did an amazing work here. Like, It took them only a couple of weeks to to fix this severe vulnerability to all of their customers, uh, which is amazing. I mean, we work with uh, many vendors, and this is like by far the best response we got we ever got from a vendor. Yeah. So really props to them. Um, but what, what's interesting uh, about uh, the impact of this vulnerability, and this is uh, something that Microsoft also covered in their email, is that uh, since we essentially were exposed to the customer secrets and anyone else who attempted to exploit this vulnerability before um, we reported it, uh, was essentially exposed to uh, these customer secrets, like the the primary key for the database. Um, they instruct their customers to actually revoke these keys. Uh, so, I mean, Microsoft can revoke it uh, to their customers on their own because this would like break this, their applications. So, uh, customers uh, had to take like uh, uh, manual measures in order to be mitigated from this vulnerability, uh, which is like. A, a quite unique thing in a managed service because usually the security is managed by the service itself. It, I mean, this is uh, part of the reason that you choose a managed service. And specifically because uh, like the the primary key for the database is like a, a long string of uh, base 64 characters. Um, you could use it in, uh, applic- I mean, it's very hard to track in which applications uh, you use it. You could use it like, in your PHP code that is uh, hosted in another cloud vendor. You could use it in, a, in a, an Azure uh, function. There's a, there are a lot of places in which you could uh, include this uh, this string, this uh, primary key. So uh, yeah, I, I am sure that uh, mitigating this vulnerability uh, from a customer side, from like, I'm, an, I'm a Cosmos DB customer and I need to, uh, to rotate my keys because uh, they could have probably been leaked um i think this was like very hard just to clarify we didn't save any of this information <laughs> i think <laughs> i think this would be like highly irresponsible so uh, right after uh, we sent this report to microsoft we immediately deleted this information so uh, you don't have to worry about us we're the good guys <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah this is essentially the story of uh, chaos db like the somewhat high level story of chaos db and uh, as I said previously, you can check out our blog and our Black Hat Talk uh, regarding this topic, uh, where, we cover it, where we cover it in much more detail.
0: I'd like to thank Sagi and Neil for sharing their Black Hat Europe talk, specifically their journey through Cosmos DB and shining a light on wire server and surface fabric frameworks within Azure. It's interesting to hear how the real process of hacking occurs, how one thing can lead to another in the hands of an experienced hacker. And it's also good to see that Microsoft responded quickly, as so many vendors today still do not. And as I said at the beginning, cloud security isn't talked about as much as it should. It's not, hey guys, let's go put everything in the cloud tomorrow. No. There needs to be some attention given to the configuration, and certainly to all the privilege settings. Somehow, I don't think this is going to be the last time I talk about cloud security. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter, or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For the hacker mine, I remain with my feet firmly on the ground, Robert Famosi.